At the Foot of the Cross, a monthly podcast from the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. Hello everyone, I'm James Abbott and welcome to At the Foot of the Cross, our new-ish monthly podcast bringing you all the very latest from the Secretariat of the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. Well, it's June, of course, and we stand on the threshold of summer and have just celebrated the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and we'll have a nice little reflection for you on that. But as always, there's lots going on, and we mentioned last month, you might remember, that it's Day for Life on Sunday the 19th of June, and that day has a second collection, so you may want to know, quite rightly, where that money goes. Well, we'll be bringing you an interview with Rachel McKenzie, who's from Rachel's Vineyard, an organisation that helps men and women rebuild after the trauma of abortion. Rachel's Vineyard received financial support by way of a Day for Life grant. International news and a delegation of bishops from across Europe has returned recently from Jerusalem after the 2022 Holy Land coordination. That's a gathering of prayer, pilgrimage and persuasion to support particularly the Christians of the region. And we've got an interview with the outgoing chair of the Holy Land coordination, Bishop Declan Lang. Let's not forget the World Meeting of Families. That takes place in Rome from the 22nd to the 26th of June. But first, it's about time we caught up with Canon Christopher Thomas, sitting opposite me, our General Secretary. Canon Chris, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, James. Nice to be with you again. Lovely to have you here. Much to talk about, as there always is. For instance, Archbishop Arthur Roach, Prefect of the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments, will be elevated to the rank of Cardinal in a consistory on Saturday the 27th of August. And I like picking your brain about such things. You know, we hear these words and we... We like definitions, we like explanations. So let's go for the very basics. Can you tell us what a consistory actually is? Well, before I do that, let's congratulate Archbishop Roach on his Quite uh, right. elevation to the College of Cardinals. And um, a consistory is, um, well, go back to the, to the word for a bit of etymology, consistere, literally means to stand together. So the Pope would gather his cardinals around him I suppose it's a bit like the Privy Council that, uh, you know, with Her Majesty the Queen, whose jubilee we celebrated this weekend, would stand and do the work of business, the work of, of, of office, as it were. The cardinals are, are, the, are the closest collaborators with the Holy Father. And so Archbishop Roach, Cardinal-elect Roach, will form part of that group of, of men in the church that support the Holy Father in his governance of the universal church through these meetings, these consistories. To give it its full title, what's happening at the end of August is an ordinary public consistory for the creation of new cardinals. The Pope can call other consistories, for instance, for the causes of saints, for instance, he'll call a consistory for that. But this is one of the big ceremonials of the Church. And um, when the Holy Father announced the list of new cardinals, there are 16 who are under the age of 80 who are able to elect the new Pope. There's voting rights. As voting rights. And there are five that are not. Of those five, one of them was one of my teachers, actually, Father Gianfranco Ghirlanda, who taught me canon law at the Gregorian University. Yeah. And uh, so uh, I'm delighted that, uh, that the Holy Father has honoured him. He's a great canonist and also he has a degree in civil law as well. But uh, he was certainly uh, a feature of my time when I was studying out in Rome. Oh, fantastic. And so, as you say, the Pope will actually 
not just have this public consistory, but he's going to keep those cardinals around him a few days after, isn't he? That's right. So the consistory will take place, and that's where the cardinals are literally created. The creation takes place in the Basilica of uh, St. Peter's, and each of the new cardinals will kneel in front of the Holy Father, and they will take an oath of fidelity, and then he gives them three things. He gives them a red hat, which is no longer the big ones that you see hanging in Westminster Cathedral above the tombs of the former archbishops there, but it's simply the red beretta. He'll place a ring on their finger as a sign of fidelity, and then he'll hand them the bull of creation. And the bull of creation basically makes them a cardinal, and he'll give them a title, and the title belongs to a church somewhere in Rome. So uh, Cardinal Nichols, for instance, when he was created a cardinal, he was given the title of the Santissimo Redentoria San Alfonso in Via Merulana, so the Church of, of, of the, the Divine Redeemer and St. Alphonsus, which is just by St. Mary Major. I remember it very well from my studies in Rome because it has the original icon of Our Lady of Perpetual Succor. It's a very beautiful church, one of the few Gothic churches in Rome, actually. But the cardinals don't know what church they're going to get until the day of their consistory. You will remember that Cardinal Murphy O'Connor had the great Santa Maria Sopna Minerva, which is, again, another beautiful Gothic church, and he was very proud of his title. Mm. So uh, Cardinal Lech Roach will, will obviously have uh, be given a title in Rome as well. And then afterwards, as you say, the Holy Father has asked them to stay together so that they can discuss things. And what they're going to discuss is the new reorganisation of the Roman Curia, which the Holy Father published recently. The document is called Predicate Evangelium, Preach the Gospel. This has been a long time in coming, and uh, it was one of the first things that the Holy Father spoke about when he was elected back in 2013. So this is, you know, a long time in, in Genesis. And the Holy Father has reorganised the Curia. So one of the things, for instance, is that whereas before we had uh, congregations and then we had pontifical councils and other offices of the Curia, they're all called dicasteries now. And a dicastery is a Roman word for, a, for an official organ of operation. The most important thing that he's done is to say that the Roman Curia exists not for itself, but is at the service of the local church. That's really important because it's not to be seen as a regulatory or a bureaucratic body. The Roman Curia is there to be at the service of the local church in every aspect of its life. And so the reorganisation that he has promulgated places at the first point evangelization as the, the primary office of, uh, of the new Roman curial structure, with himself as the head, with two pro-prefects, and these are, this new dicastery is formed of the former Congregation for the Evangelization of Peoples and the Pontifical Council for the Promotion of New Evangelization. So and the, the, there will be two pro-prefects in that office. And looking at the new structure, its other main feature is that um, the Holy Father has said that any member of the faithful may now preside over a dicastery. Oh, yes. Uh, whereas in the past it was always reserved to those who were in holy order. As we see from the Dicastery for Communication, obviously, which your work here, James, has a lot of relationship with, Indeed. Um, there's a layman in charge of that, uh, Dr. Ruffini. And so we've already got this change in, in train. But in fact, what we could have now, for instance, are, are lay women in charge of uh, Dicastries in Rome. So the Holy Father is moving this gently forward. But the most important thing about this reform is this key thing, that the Roman Curia is at the service of the local church. And so, you know, we're looking to a, a much more deeper collaboration 
between Episcopal conferences in the local church with the diocese and also then back to the Roman Curia. So no longer regulatory, no longer heavily bureaucratic, but I would hope it would be a lighter touch and a, a better dialogue. And we're somewhat mirroring that ourselves at the Bishops' Conference, aren't we? We're looking to be tighter and closer to to the local church as well. Well, we're trying to ensure that what we are doing is truly what the bishops want. We don't determine what the work is here. We consult with the bishops, we see what their pastoral priorities are, and we move that forward in order to reflect what they see as emerging from their diocese, which has an importance on a national scale, as it were. So it's very important that it is the bishops that drive our work here and that uh, we are responding to the pastoral needs in this country. Now, talking about being at service with the local church, you probably know where I'm going to go with this. I'm going to mention that word synod, Ah, yes, yes. which we have talked about many times. But we've had a sort of national day, haven't we, to just get ourselves closer to a synthesis. Well, as you know, we asked for all of the dioceses and national organisations to submit their work to the Bishops' Conference. It was on the Friday before Holy Week. And since then, uh, the National Synthesis team of people who have come together to read all of that material, over 700 pages worth of material, we have drawn together the major themes that have come out of each of those reports. And we sent out last week to all of the bishops, all of the delegates that each bishop had drawn from his diocese to come to Southwark Cathedral so that we can look at what we had drafted and to critique it. And it was interesting because one of the things I hadn't realised when the date was determined was where it falls in the liturgical calendar. It fell on the 1st of June, which is in between the Ascension of the Lord and Pentecost. And so that gathering of the bishops as the successors of the apostles with the people around them who had discerned that work in the diocese and disseminated all of the material and gathered it together and worked on it and refined it, it was like that experience of the apostles waiting patiently with Mary in the upper room for the gift of the Holy Spirit. I thought it was a very beautiful image and it was something that that really um, touched me when I was looking at the preparations for that day. So um, the day was rooted in prayer. The first thing that we did was to have a period of silent prayer in front of the Blessed Sacrament. Everybody gathered in Southern Cathedral, silently praying for the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the inspiration. We reflected on the two icons of the Synod that come from the preparatory document, the crowd and Cornelius, the two icons that the Holy Father talked to us about as listening in the silence rather than being guided by the crowd, and then the whole concept of that wonderful encounter of Cornelius with Peter. And then we celebrated Mass, and Archbishop Wilson presided and preached, and uh, drew on the image of St Justin the Martyr, who basically saw and explained in his own life and in his martyrdom that the folly of the cross can only be understood when it is taken to heart that to what looks like stupidity to the rest of the world is actually a sense of true faith when you were sent with your heart to the love of God. Archbishop John told us that what we are asked to do in that day was to do our best, to be open to the Spirit, to allow ourselves to be guided by the Spirit in our deliberations so that what we draw from the national synthesis would actually be faithful to what was received. And then we got down to the hard work, seated around tables in diocesan groups. We reflected on what was a delight with what was put out as the draft national synthesis. What was missing? Could we have those echoes? Could we hear the echoes of our own diocesan reports in what was written? 
and on the whole, there was a great deal of positivity in the room about what had been produced. Obviously, it'll need refining, and there will be uh, the, we're in that process already of looking at all of the comments that were garnered on that day to help us truly produce a national synthesis. And in the meantime, what will happen is that the bishops, having received that first draft now, will go away and they will begin their discernment of what they have received. That will hopefully be published at the end of the month alongside the final version of the National Synthesis. And we will be looking to sending all of this material off to Rome in the middle of August because it has to be in by the 15th to the Synod Office in Rome by the 15th. So the work continues and it's being done in a very prayerful, listening, dialogical way. We are listening and hearing everything that's being said and we are hopefully going to put that forward now. This phase of the work of the whole synod process will come to an end. But we mustn't forget that it's not about sending reports to Rome. It's about embedding the listening conversations and the way of working together in our diocese so that we are better equipped for the mission of the church in today's world. So, Canon Chris, like any gathering, any conversation, there, there can be challenging moments, of course. Did you experience any challenging times? I didn't. What I think was key to the whole process, which has been echoed in the processes in dioceses, is the fact that this is rooted in prayer. And so if there was disagreement, people came to disagreement with an open heart and a willingness to listen. And what I did see was that we do have to make shifts of emphasis in the draft that we proposed. There will be sort of changes of, of shade, as it were. But I don't see anything drastic that's going to change. Things will come out, things will go in. But the shape of it, I think people were very happy with. So I was very happy with that. So the process going forward now is that we will complete our work in finalising the National Synthesis document. And the bishops have already begun because they have the draft, so they don't have to wait for us to completely finalise it because there's not going to be a huge amount of change. What the bishops have got now is the draft synthesis and they will begin their discernment on that. And the bishops are going to meet at the end of the month on the 28th of June and they will then discuss their discerning of what is produced as the national synthesis document. And on the 29th of June, there will be mass at Westminster Cathedral with all the bishops present, uh, and it's open to anybody. There, Cardinal Nichols, who will preside and preach at mass, will be able to expand a little bit more on the bishops' discernment. And then the final documentation will be put together, so that will be the bishops' discernment document and the national synthesis, and both will be sent to Rome in time for the deadline, which is the 15th of August. So... This process is still ongoing, but the most important thing about the process is that it's the prize. It's not what gets sent off to Rome. It's not what's going to come out of the 2023 Synod. It's the fact that we now have a mode of operating in the church of careful, prayerful listening to one another and discerning what is being heard. We have to embed that in the very life of the church now because that really is what the Holy Father wants. No, oh, that's very good to hear. And talking about positives, we tend to ground our podcasts in a little bit of scripture, don't we? Ah, yes. And well, you're very good at this. And we've just well. had Pentecost, a very good thing to focus our minds on, mm. the gift of the Holy Spirit. Give us your thoughts. Well, when I was thinking about Pentecost, I came across in my mind, you know, a word that in modern language has a very negative timbre to it. And that's the word conspirator. You know, if you think about who are the conspirators, it's always about a negative darkness. But in fact, as Christians, we are conspirators. We are conspirators because we breathe with the same breath, that Holy Spirit 
given to the apostles on that feast of Pentecost, the same spirit that was given to us at our baptism and and confirmed within us at our confirmation. And so breathing the same life-giving gift in our lives should help us, first of all, to deepen our relationship with the risen and ascended Lord. And our hearts should overflow with all of those gifts. And just to remind us of what the gifts of the Spirit are, wisdom and understanding, counsel and fortitude, knowledge and piety. And the one that I love more, it's called fear of the Lord. I always think this is awe and wonder of the Lord because I still find it a remarkable thing that I can enter into his presence and worship him. Even though I know my own sinfulness, even though I know my own weaknesses, he loves me and he allows me to enter his presence and to offer him that worship. And these precious gifts help us in our witnessing of the gospel. Don't forget the disciples didn't stay in the upper room. They went out into Jerusalem and they preached the gospel in the languages of the world. But there's another word that came to my mind when I was thinking about this, and that's the word companion. And it wasn't just because the Holy Spirit bound them together as friends. They were true companions because when we read all the way through the Easter season, the life of the new church in the Acts of the Apostles. They were faithful to the coming together and the common life, to the teaching of the apostles, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And so companion means sharers of the same bread. And so that sharing of the same bread was the sustaining force. The Eucharist was the sustaining force that actually drew them into that life of apostleship that feeds us for our journey. Same for us. We breathe the same spirit. We are fed by the eternal bread of life. And so an image of the church for me that came out in this year's Pentecost was very much as conspirators and companions. Conspirators because the spirit dwells within us and drives our witness to the gospel. And companions because we need to gather. We need to gather together to be fed by the bread of life so that we are nourished through word and through sacrament, to go out into the world. And so then we are able to do what those apostles did on that first Pentecost, which is to proclaim the good news of Jesus as Lord to the whole of creation, and that even though we are living in different times, we can proclaim that singular voice in our own time, in our own way, and with the accents of our own lives. Oh, that's lovely. Conspirator and companion. I thought, actually, we, as you know, we've had our series reading Acts in Easter very appropriately through the season. And I personally, you know, even putting it together, felt like I was on a journey. You know, you, you felt the hospitality, you felt the fear sometimes and the, the need to step out and preach and be brave in the face of what could have been certain death and, and persecution. It's a time for us to be cleansed, I guess, isn't it? It's to be renewed. I mean, uh, the psalm on Pentecost Sunday is, send forth your spirit, O Lord, and renew the face of the earth. And renewal doesn't mean discontinuity from the past. I mean, you know, grace builds on our nature. You know, it doesn't destroy us. So we bring all that is good from the past and, and we renew it. I think one of the other images I like about Pentecost is that it's a bit like two connections being brought together in an electrical circuit, you know, that the Holy Spirit descends upon us, but the Holy Spirit's already within us. And so the two come together to create a stronger force of mission in our lives. And that, again, ties in with the work of the synodal process. You know, we are focused on what does it mean for communion and participation to make the church more mission-focused in today's world. And if we can think of those two things as being companions and conspirators, 
eating of the same eternal bread of life and breathing the same spirit, then that will obviously draw us closer to Christ, but more importantly, inspire us for mission. Canon Christopher Thomas there, General Secretary here at the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. Particularly enjoyed that reflection on Pentecost as we move out of Easter and into ordinary time. Very good indeed. Right, what I should really do now is tell you how you can get in touch with us, should you wish to do so. You can contact us through our main social media channels, Catholic EW on Twitter, CBCEW on Facebook, and perhaps easier to get your head around, Catholic Church, or one, on Instagram. And if you'd like to subscribe to At the Foot of the Cross, then you can shout at your smart speaker if that's the thing you like to do. You can ask Siri, Google or Alexa to play the latest episode or use your podcast platform of choice, there are so many of them, to sign up and follow us. We'd be delighted to have you join us every month. Well, a little earlier in my intro, I promised to bring you an interview with an extraordinary lady, Rachel McKenzie from Rachel's Vineyard. Day for Life is celebrated in our parishes on Sunday the 19th of June, and as the second collection baskets will be going round in the churches, it's only fair to give you some insight into where that money goes. We give out a number of grants every year to organisations working to uphold the dignity of human life from conception to natural end, and Rachel's Vineyard is a very worthy recipient indeed of one of those grants. I'm going to hand over now to Colette McGovern from our policy and research team who caught up with Rachel McKenzie to ask her to tell us a little bit more about Rachel's Vineyard and its work. So Rachel McKenzie is here in the studio today. She's the director of Rachel's Vineyard, one of the projects that we financially support through the Day for Life Fund. So Rachel, can you tell us a little bit about what Rachel's Vineyard is? So, yes, thank you for having me. Uh, So Rachel's Vineyard supports those that are traumatised from abortion, whether it be the mother or the father or the grandparents or any siblings and also those that have worked in the abortion industry and regret it. And what sort of support do you offer in Rachel's Vineyard? What does that look like? So the main support that, uh, thankfully, the, the uh, through the Day for Life grant that we can help more and more women and men is through the Rachel's Vineyard retreats. So on a retreat, it's a place where you can get away from the world and really immerse yourself in the process and the grief that's needed to heal. So on that weekend retreat, you're supported to look at your abortion story and to go through the stages of grief until eventually we come to a place of healing. The majority of the healing does happen at Rachel's Vineyard, but there's also lots of other support that these men and women need too. The support that they need can be counselling or psychotherapy if somebody's been assaulted or abused in any way. There's also that we help people and sponsor people to go to Catholic events like Youth 2000 and annual Rachel's Vineyard Alphas, so people get a better connection with God. We also support those um, in the early stages of grieving where they've just had an abortion and they immediately regret it, so we journey with people for as long as they need it before and after a retreat. This might be a bit of a strange question, so the retreats play a central part of the Rachel's Vineyard ministry. And obviously you help people there process the grief and the trauma from abortion, their own or perhaps people related to them within their own story. What are the highlights? Is there any highlights on running a weekend like that? Or where do you see God working there? Is there anything that surprises you on a retreat like that? 
I think it's the main reason why I carry on doing these retreats. They're so addictive because it's a place where they really get to meet God. And on the Friday, I always say to the participants, you're going to heal on this retreat, not because of me, but in spite of me, because God turns up and he turns up in a huge way and a very powerful way. So my highlight is always that moment, that aha moment when they realise what's really happened, who's really died and how they are loved even by their children and by God and they can actually begin to love themselves. So that's one of the highlights for me. What would you say to a man or a woman listening to this podcast who's maybe struggling with the hurt of abortion? What would you say to them today? I'd tell the men and women that hurt, the mums and dads out there or the grandparents, one, they're not alone and that they are already loved and they can get forgiveness. They haven't committed the unforgivable sin and they just need a place where they can work through that pain and just be supported along the way. So I'd say to those men and women... I'm here, Rachel's Vineyard's here to help you and to support you in any way we can. I think last year we've seen the abortion statistics come out, at least certainly for the last few years, and over 200,000 abortions are committed every year in the UK. How many people would you see on a retreat or what sort of need is there for healing from abortion? A lot of women might say, my body, my choice, I don't need a ministry like that. What do you see and experience on the, the cold face of running these retreats? And does abortion cause hurt and harm to women, men and society? Absolutely. Abortion hurts all of us, whether we know it or not. I mean, I lost Jude and Paul, my own sons, through abortion. My children were killed when I just thought it was my body, my choice. I thought I had this problem and I just wanted the problem to go away. But abortion doesn't solve the problem of me not being a mum. It just made me a mum to children that have died and that are in heaven now. And so when I look at the statistics of, you know, 200 plus thousand, I also think not only have we lost the children, but the mums and dads, you know, what's happened to them? What stage of grief are they stuck in? And I love them wherever they're at. So I imagine it's not the easiest of areas to work in and for you know I mean the church absolutely has to be in that space and accompanying people in their trauma and their hurt one of the things that you've often spoken to at least in conversations I've had with you is the need to preach truth and love and for you I think you've said that's the heart of your ministry do you want to explain a little bit more about that yeah so if we're suffering if we're grieving then we need to know what the cause of that is and we need to recognize and own our part that we played in an abortion story and it's in those moments where we are given truth and love together that we can heal i know for my own story it was a priest that lovingly said to me rachel it's not you could have been a mom you are a mom and it's in those moments of truth and love that the healing can really take place I know many, many priests that are so worried and concerned and it comes from such a loving place, but they're concerned that if they talk about abortion in a homily or from the pulpit, that they're going to really offend the post-abortive women and men out there. But it's already been done to us, we're already hurt and actually the silence is hurting us more. So it's a wonderful opportunity for priests to really minister to these women and men and to, you know, say we're so sorry that, you know, you've, you've lost your child through abortion and be there for them. Yeah, I think one of the misconceptions people have about the Catholic Church would be that it's priests, it's bishops, it's cardinals, the Pope, men in Rome telling women what to do with their bodies. But I think what you're saying here is they have a really fundamental part 
in terms of men and women's healing journey from abortion? Absolutely. On every team of Rachel's Vineyard, there is a priest. And it's like such a hand-picked, loving priest. Got so many of them. And they not only give the sacraments at Rachel's Vineyard to the Catholics, but they show what a good man looks like. Because often these women are very much hurt by, by men. And so these wonderful priests can show just what a good man looks like and also be the face of Jesus to these women and men. So I mentioned earlier, you're one of the recipients of Day for Life funding. We take a collection on Day for Life Sunday, which we celebrate on the third Sunday in June. And it funds a number of projects across the country, big projects and small projects like Rachel's Vineyard. How has this financial support contributed to your ministry and work? So if it wasn't for the grant, we wouldn't be able to put on the amount of retreats we put on. I would actually now actually be going back to teaching. That was my job before. And I've had to give up my work to be able to really focus on the amount of men and women that are coming through. There's hundreds every single year. And to support them holistically and appropriately, we wouldn't be able to do it without this grant. I think, again, just going back to um, misconceptions people have about the church, I just think your ministry just really exemplifies the church as mother, wanting to hold, wanting to heal, wanting to walk alongside people. And we are really happy to be able to support that here at the Day for Life Fund. Where can we find out more about your work and your ministry or if anyone, again, is listening today and needs some support? So if you go onto the website, rachelsvineyard.org.uk, and go to the dates, you'll see when the next retreats are available. But don't be put off if the next retreat is months away because we journey with people before and after. There's national phone numbers on there, that's my number. And there's other areas in Scotland and in Essex that can help you too. Ah, great work, Rachel. Very much walking the walk there, helping women and indeed men to recover from the trauma of abortion. But that's not the end of the interviews. Oh no, to round things off, we're going to hear from Bishop Declan Lang. Bishop Declan is the Bishop of Clifton and the outgoing chair of what's called the Holy Land Coordination. It's an annual gathering of bishops from across Europe and across the world, actually, in the Holy Land to stand alongside the Christians of this rather complicated region and to assure them that they're not alone. We often say that that support is expressed through the four P's, Prayer, pilgrimage, pressure and presence. The bishops gathered in Jerusalem from the 21st to the 26th of May. So let's find out from Bishop Declan exactly what they experienced this time round. I'm joined by Bishop Declan Lang, Chair of the Holy Land Coordination. And we've just finished the 2022 coordination based primarily in Jerusalem. And Bishop Declan, one of the lines in the final communique is, a true Holy Land pilgrimage should be a journey of faith, encounter and solidarity. Just tell me how you've experienced those things this time round. It's always been stressed with the coordination group that we're not just visitors, we come in as pilgrims. It's part of our faith journey, our relationship with God, and recognising that our relationship with God is enriched by our meeting of the people of the Holy Land. They open our eyes to messages of the gospel, which our eyes are perhaps closed to due to differences in society. They're very much people who suffer and who carry the cross and perhaps have glimpses of the resurrection. They make us think about our, our own lifestyle and how that is an expression of the crucifixion and resurrection. 
And there was talk earlier on from the Latin patriarch of Jerusalem, his beatitude, Pia Battista Pizzabala, about there kind of needing to be a, a new narrative for the holy city of Jerusalem, an inclusive narrative where the, the, the gates are, they, they define rather than defend. How did that land on you? It was very impressive. In past years, we've left the coordination group, have left feeling rather downcast and feeling nothing is really improving. But the patriarch put forward a vision that is new and can be exciting. The, the problem will be put it into practice that those people who have got a vested interest um, in the present setup will probably oppose him. But I think he's a person who's a strong leader and um, he will persevere and he will make real what his vision is. And often it's the younger generations that demand the most of us. I know you met with young people and they were passionate. And one, one of the positives is that there's often talk of the Christian exodus and our young people moving away for, for opportunities elsewhere because of the struggles and the difficulties in, in these lands. Did it strike you that there was an element of hope about the youth this time? The group of young people that we met were very impressive and very determined as well and quite outspoken, especially about their relationship with the church. Yes, I think they are, are providing hope for the future. They're determined not to be the last generation in the country. They say people tell them they will be, but they're determined that they will not be, that they will stay and develop their society. What they're looking for, as they say, is dignity. They're not looking for anything exceptionally extraordinary. They're looking just for the ordinary dignity that people are due in their, their daily lives. And... One of the extremely moving encounters that you had was a meeting with the family of the Christian-Palestinian journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, who was killed in Janine some weeks ago. Tell me a little bit about, about that meeting. It was a very moving meeting. We were honoured, really, to, to meet with the family. They were showing great support for one another. Coming out in thousands at her funeral as a sign that the Christian community is not going to be silenced. It is going to be apparent. It is going to be salt of the earth and light of the world. And it is going to stand up for human rights. And this, this holy city of Jerusalem is extremely important for us as Christians, but also it's important for Muslims and for Jews as well. How important is it that there's a sort of equality of, of access and rights for, for all three of those faiths? There's never going to be an equality of numbers of people, but uh, it's important that each faith is respected and that everyone has the right to worship in the way in which they choose and go to the places that are sacred to them. And we all, always talk about the peace or the potential for peace in this region, about the need for justice, because it isn't perfect, is it? So there's, there's, there's a long way to go. Do you see any signs of hope at this stage? Signs of hope, I think, are... The Christian community is a very small community, but it, it, it excels in its activities, especially of charity towards people and social welfare and education. We pull up more than our weight, and that's always a sign of hope. And that also that the Christian community is pledged, really, to make this place a sacred place, a place of dialogue and peace. And one of those projects that we saw that was rather impressive was that mission to migrants and asylum seekers who are often undocumented and have great difficulties in this country. Tell us a bit about that meeting. 
That meeting was, again, extraordinary. Meeting with people who looked after those who are no people at all because they have no identity. And the story is of mothers having to go out to work, needing to leave their children somewhere. And I mean, that with the, the sisters at St. Rachel's and the workers there, they can leave their children in safety, in security. Now, I was profoundly moved by that, but I was also, as indeed we always do with the Holy Land coordination, very moved by being around the people. And you had those pastoral visits for Mass on the Sunday. Tell me about your pastoral visit. We went to the place, the parish, in which we'd been the previous night to meet the young people. The parish was very welcoming. It was a lively liturgy. And they were very, very nice afterwards, very kind in their remarks. But they also were showing in their determination that they would be a people to be counted. Their future lay in the place where they were born and brought up, not not abroad. And finally, Bishop Declan, you announced to the group um, at, at the closing session that after a number of years, you're stepping down as chair of the Holy Land Coordination. Do you leave with happy memories, positive memories, or, or do you have some sort of challenges in mind? A mixture is the answer to that. It's been an ex- extraordinary experience coming to the Holy Land, meeting not just Christians of the Latin Rite, but all other Christians and other people and other religions. It's a real place where a meeting of, of religion and the possibility of a dialogue between faiths as well. Meeting the people of the country is always a great insight into how life really is here. And there have been times when it's been quite downcast because the lack of justice to many people, which is denied by those who are imposing the injustice upon others. Another memory I have is of the snow in Bethlehem. It snowed heavily and we, were, we almost couldn't get out of the place. Quite magic, really. This is it, we've just completed. The fact we got flooded out in our hotel, that's a memory I'll keep as well. Well, look, you're obviously not going to be a stranger, though, because you're back in September, so you'll be back in the region in a number of months anyway. I will. We have 50 pilgrims from the Diocese of Clifton. We're looking forward to that. Bishop Declan Lang, thank you very much. Thank you, James. Very grateful to get an interview with Bishop Declan, because what most people won't know is the backdrop to that piece. It was recorded quite late at night in Jerusalem, after Bishop Declan and and actually all of us had pretty minimal sleep after a burst water pipe and ear-splitting fire alarm caused us all to evacuate the hotel at 3.30 in the morning, with water pouring down the corridors. So a very big thank you to Bishop Declan for that reflection. And a big thank you, too, for his seven years of service as chair of the Holy Land Coordination. He'll be handing that responsibility on. Several bishops expressed their gratitude for the very skillful way that he's led the group. And the coordination, with the efforts of Liverpool priest Father Mark Madden, who does plenty of heavy lifting on the organising and admin, has gone from strength to strength under Bishop Declan's leadership. Okay, that's it for this month's At the Foot of the Cross. It's good to see so many of you in our churches again. It does feel like we're getting back to some sort of normality as we emerge from the challenges of the pandemic. Drop us a line if you want to. I mentioned our social channels a little bit earlier on, but if good old email's your thing, then you can get me on communications at cbcew.org.uk. That's it from me for another month, myself, Canon Chris Thomas and possibly one or two others will be back with you next time. Bye for now.